All right, everybody, welcome back. Here is our much-awaited guest, Dr. Connor Bambasi. He's been busy in the clinic for the past few months, so we haven't gotten to do one of these shows, but now we're back and ready to go. And today, based on a lot of what we've been seeing in the clinic, we're talking about strength training for runners and the absolute necessary need for it. So uh, working with people that run or are runners or marathoners, whatever you are, it is point blank essentially crucial that you do some type of strength training. And we know you guys kind of know you need it, but not many of you are still doing it or doing it consistently enough to make an actual change um, and prepare yourself for running and to make yourself resilient enough to stop ending up in our office. <laughs> that's that's the big piece here. So uh, today we're going to go over some of the things that runners uh, can experience if they're not strength training, as well as what you will experience from strength training, the benefits you'll get, any risks involved, and what you should expect to see, and why you should just get in the gym and start doing something um, that is going to help you run more than hurt it. And I think that's that's the disconnect people have. And I think the other thing too, and Connor, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of runners think they strength train uh, and they have this like their own version of it that they do at home. And it's just like, yeah, no, this is not what you need for running. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. If your strength training caps out at a 10 pound dumbbell, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah. So Connor, where do you want to start this conversation today? Benefits. You're more of a runner. I'm definitely more of a runner than, well, you used to be a big trail runner, but I've been big. I'm on week three now of the hybrid powerlifting running and it's been fun. I feel slow, but it's fun. So benefits and risks, definitely where we got to start. And I'll tell you right now, the risks are minimal. In terms of benefits though, I feel like the biggest things that we hear from our runners is they'll feel more springy when they're taking off. They feel like they have better endurance, especially in their legs. Like they have a stronger push even in their later miles. And then lastly, the biggest thing is I feel like, you know that extreme soreness you get after a long run? Like the first time you hit a really long run in a while, they tell me that that's not nearly as bad because of whether they're doing squats, split squats, whatever it is. They don't have that soreness and they feel like they can train at a higher intensity more often for running, whether that's tempos, distance work, you name it. Yeah. And, and I mean, let's just talk about this. If just doing a comparison here of like, if you have someone that's been training both running and strength training, and I'm looking at two people that have the same times, and then one can now squat, I don't know, 185 pounds for 10 and one squatting a hundred pounds for 10. Who do we think is going to have more push in their step to get them a little further, a little faster? Yeah. Not too hard to guess that one. Yeah. So I think the other thing too is just looking at benefits versus risks. There's more risks than just running. So the point I need to make here is that running is a skill. Running is something we can't just take for granted. I think too many people go out into the world and just think, oh, you know, I have two feet. They can go one foot in front of the other. I'm just going to get out there and I'm going to start running. And I don't need a program. I'm just going to go for a run, which you can. And sometimes you can get away with it. But when you become more competitive in the running space and you start doing more and more miles, it becomes even more and more crucial that we're doing something else because running is just a sagittal plane sport. So we're doing this and we're only 
patternizing one movement pattern when we should have like thousands of different movement options or, or patterns available to us to utilize. And so the problem that we run into with people that are only running is that they get stuck in these certain patterns or positions. Um, like in ankle, for example, one of the big issues we see is with running is people will get hurt, they'll feel pain. And then what they end up doing is they're compensating around that pain. And, you know, if their forefoot hurts, like they might start heel striking more instead, but only on one side. And now my hips might be rotated the other way. And this can go all the way up the chain. And they've done nothing outside of that run to give themselves variability. So now we're just continually habituating to this one pattern and then we can't get out of it nearly as easily if and then take someone that does strength train it's like okay well i have you moving in various different planes i have you doing rotational exercises frontal plane exercises working laterally there's a lot more things we can do to keep ourselves mobile um and strong from breaking down that people just don't seem to get the point of or, or the gist of there such a hot buzzword to mobility. And I swear if I hear one more person tell me about stretching their hamstrings, I'm going to freak out. Every time they come in with an issue or a pain, it's, I got to stretch this. When in all reality, the last thing we probably need to do is stretch your hamstrings more because as soon as they show me, they can get their palms to the floor when they do a forward like bend over. You know what I mean? It blows my mind. Yeah, I, I really, we can get into that one too. Um, but what, what would you say are the risks of someone's strength training? Aside from just general weight room safety of like dropping a dumbbell on your foot and stuff like that, the only true risk I see coming on is if you overtrain. If you're already running five days a week and you're not dosing your running or your weight training so that they complement each other, that's really the only big one I see. And then at that point, it's time to reach out to a coach that knows what they're doing and make sure that everything is very complementary and things aren't contradicting themselves. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing too, people don't realize is is they think running or, or strength training is going to break them down for running, and it's going to make them slow. It's going to make them weak, uh, or weaker at least with their pace or what have you. But um, we have to realize too that every time we run and we land on a single leg, we are putting two to two to four times our body weight through our leg. And that is a lot of force to repeatedly do for miles on miles. If right? not more. If not more, yeah. So depending on how you're running, uh, if you're limping, you could put two two times body weight on one, six on the other. We have no idea. But the the piece of that is we need you strong enough to handle those loads because that's a lot of load, especially if we start to have a compensatory pattern. Even if you do comp compensate in some way i think the big thing we need to think about is that okay well if my you know because here's the thing there's no movement unicorn out there no one moves perfectly we all have our little compensations and habits that that we might have however i will tell you right now that the person that is stronger because they're strength training because their bones are stronger, their ligaments are stronger, their tendons are more resilient, they have more movement options, they have more mobility strategies because of it. 
that person is less likely to break down than the person who is only running all the time. Absolutely. And, and so I think the the benefits there just way outweigh the risks because um like I said, like it's just your your whole body is going to be more resilient. We're gonna see differences in the physiological bone mass and structure. We're gonna see differences in what the tendons actually look like in their um their actual breaking point will be higher. And I feel like a lot of the issues that we see in the clinic are related to overuse. They might not all be overuse, but a lot of them relate to that. And strength training is almost like the pill that you could give to kind of fight that. Absolutely. It's just going to make like, yeah, it's going to make everything denser, stronger, and way less brittle. Just harder to break. Just you want to be a runner that doesn't break down as much, just go strength train. Yeah. In and, a smart way too. And so let's talk a little bit about what, what training should actually look like for a runner, Connor. Are we talking bare minimum or are we talking like ideal? Well, let's talk about what not ideal is first. <laughs> okay. Of so, like of everyone, I think to me, and you can you can go off this too. Every runner seems to think that like me being at home in my living room doing twenty minutes of single leg deadlifts and body weight squats and body weight lunges is enough to facilitate um, something we would consider strength training for runners, and that's completely not the case at all. It's definitely not the case. I mean, if you're that weak that that's what's stimulating growth, like, cool. But I, that's very rarely the case for us. I feel like a lot of times we need to get under a bar, move a kettlebell, move an external load against gravity to make us stronger. I, I forgot, too, the, the classic banded monster walks, which are a great exercise. For a warm-up. For a warm-up. <laughs> for a warm-up, but it should not be the staple of your strength training program for home. Yeah, that's not your main lower body lift. Let me put it that way. No. So... So what do you have as an ideal for at least a minimum for people to to train? Two days a week of lifting real weights, like an actual gym session is fantastic, I think. Like if you just want to start somewhere, start it two days a week, whole body each day. And that means moving either a kettlebell, dumbbells, barbells, moving some external load against gravity. Mm -hmm. And what type of movements should we be doing, with even especially for the, the lower body and the core? So you know that we're going to be doing anti-rotation because of all the swinging and stuff like that as your body goes through motion and locomotion as you're running. For a lower body, though, we're going to be looking at hip hinging and squatting, both bilateral and unilateral, whether it's a single leg deadlift, a rear foot elevated split squat, a bilateral front squat, or a conventional deadlift, whatever way that your coach feels is appropriate to dose you. But you know that we've got to hit all those main movement patterns for your lower body to make you a stronger runner. Yeah, I think the other thing too that I really like to focus on when I'm working with rehabbing my runners is working at different skill sets of what different traits can we start to express with a runner. So typically runners are kind of at this, um, I would say medium speed, right? They're not sprinting when they're running mm -hmm. um, unless they're like a short distance runner. But like say we take a marathoner and they're kind of at one speed all the time, yet or they'll train a couple different things. Like some will have a speed day, a hill day, an mm -hmm. interval day, maybe a fartlek day. But all in all, when I'm working with runners, I want to be working at a little bit of everything at some point through their training periods where it's, okay, yeah, we're going to do heavy deadlifts in one point here and really just build some bone density and, and, and mass 
um, where I want to have another piece of training be about load absorption and getting these guys. Because a lot of runners we see, uh, we get them back to doing plyometric work and they have no idea how to land softly and use their foot, hip, knee, and ankle all synergistically to have a nice soft load where they're absorbing force well. Sometimes it's like we're jumping with concrete blocks as feet and we need to restore the ability to do that. I want to work on that. I want to work on single leg uh, symmetry or, or power between legs of my left foot should be able to jump as high as my right foot. I want to have some type of acceleration. I want to be able to move outside of the sagittal plane. I want to be able to rotate my body, rotate my hips, work on some of that mobility. These are all things that a training program for a runner should have that we don't get from running, but just a, another stimulus to keep us healthy. Absolutely. And can I pick on Anthony for a second? Because he knows I love him and I can talk about him in any way and I would say it to his face, is when he was getting ready for his marathon, we were doing almost like a variation of French contrast, but for runners. So it was isometrics for his tendons, ligaments, and making him super strong, overspeed plyometrics to make sure that he was still bouncy and springy, a heavy movement of some form, and just like variations and trying to make sure that he could absorb force, create force as efficiently and with as much variation as possible. So we were doing unilateral versions bilateral versions and obviously this kind of tapered off and got a little bit more relaxed as he got closer to race time but he was getting everything under the sun just to make sure that he was kind of as resilient as possible because anthony's a strong dude like his legs are thick he's not when you look at him biomechanically he's not meant to be a runner but he did great at his marathon and i think it's a lot of his preparation that he did yeah and, and that comes down to that whole piece of like i think too many runners too end up training uh, for endurance and that might not be what we need. So I want to talk about this a little bit with you of just the thought process behind strength training and, you know, running is an endurance sport. And so there's a lot of stuff on the internet will tell people like, Oh, well, you're an endurance athlete. You need to do 15 to 30 reps of this exercise, you know, 15 to 30 reps per set. When, Really, sometimes we should be on the complete other end of the spectrum. I think there are certain things we need that 15 to 30 rep range. However, there's a lot of times I might have someone in the four to six rep range for running. So, Connor, I want you to talk about that a little bit. No doubt. And I would say it comes back to the concept of filling the empty buckets. Like if you're already really good at endurance, chances are when you come to this other spot, which is the weight room for us, I don't need you to be doing more endurance. Like you're already good at it. You might get hurt that way, too. Yeah, I was going to say, that kind of leads back to the whole overtraining thing. Like, we don't need to do more of what you're already good at. We need to give you the things that you stink at and then make those better. Mm -hmm. And I think that the misconception there, too, and this is what happens when people go to regular gyms that aren't uh, individualizing things for people or, you know, a lot of gyms they're having you exercise to just work hard mm -hmm. and make you tired. Ideally, if you're training for running, the idea for you to go to the gym and strength train, and this goes for weightlifting too, and I've had to have a conversation with some people that have had a background of going to other gyms that do high-intensity boot camps or that these people have really been in like bodybuilding before or think – bodybuilding is the way to strength train and it's not like as an athlete 
I don't want to make you too tired. My idea of you coming in and training is not to have you come in and be dying tomorrow and, you know, feeling like you can't stand up out of your chair because we deadlifted too much or squatted too much. My idea is I want the minimum effective dose to get you stronger. So not every week we're going to see it. Progress is not linear, but I want to see most of the weeks that we are putting a little bit more weight on the bar. We can handle a little bit more reps. They're moving faster, right? Our recovery time might be becoming less and less, but it might be three sets of five of deadlifts. We're not going for four sets of 15 or six sets of anything or 10 sets of 10. Yeah, no. and not German and volume I, training here. No. Yeah, I think too many people have this idea that strength training for runners is just supposed to make you tired, make you sore, make you all these things. But like, no, I still want you fresh so that tomorrow when you get out there, you can get after it. And it's yeah, not going to impact your own. Yeah. Yeah, it should be like. Uh, going to the gym for a runner should almost be like a refreshing session of like maybe an hour, some mobility stuff, some light plyometric stuff, a little bit of strength sprinkled in there with some, some maybe heavy deadlifts or squats or single leg variations. And then, uh, you know, some accessory work and you're done. So, yeah. Um, and so Connor, let's talk about the whole unilateral versus plyometric training. This is something I've heard you have a really good conversation with Julia about, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on this again. So take us through your thought process on single leg training versus bilateral training of, so for those of you that don't know those terms, thinking of like a, a squat, a goblet squat or a back squat or deadlift is a bilateral pattern where a single leg deadlift, a split squat, a Bulgarian split squat, all these are single leg variations. So Connor, what's your thought process on, bilateral versus single leg training for runners. Cause I think a lot of people think they should be single leg all the time and that's all they should do. And, and you disagree. Big, big time disagree. And I would say this matters more so when you get closer to race time. Cause I remember we were talking about tapering one of our marathoners with Julia as we were getting close to race time. And I was explaining to her, the closer you get to race time, especially if running is just a single leg plyometric repeated for 26.2 miles you don't need a ton of single leg strength or plyometrics the closer to race time. Like you need to make sure everything else, all the other buckets are as full as possible to make sure that if fatigue and form breaks down and stuff like that during a race, you're covered. It's like your insurance policy. So if running is just a single leg plyometric with just body weight loads, I'm going to give you the polar opposite as you get closer to race time to try to fill those buckets. So it's going to be more looking like bilateral isometrics, heavy load, very low volume, because you want to keep them as fresh as possible. We talked a lot about how volume is definitely the biggest determinant of how sore and fatigued you get, not the intensity. You can hit a couple easy singles at 85% and feel like money the next day. Whereas if you hit high volume, you could feel like trash. Yeah. And that's where a lot of runners go wrong is they're doing strength training in high volume states where their body weight for, you know, they're doing these workout DVDs at home or something. And it's like, it's high repetition, high volume that will smoke you more than, um, high intensity, low volume training. And that's absolutely. That's and that doesn't piece. matter when you're wicked far away from race time. That may not matter. Like you can get away with a lot in a GPP phase where you're just trying to in general, get prepared for things. 
it doesn't matter as much there. Like your ratio of bilateral to unilateral, it doesn't really matter there as much. But as you start getting closer and closer to race time, your ratio should go away from 50-50 from unilateral bilateral, all of a sudden getting closer to a little more bilateral in your strength training. And so Connor, how should people think about having structure to their program? Say they're going to do a marathon in a year. What should that macro phasic structure look like for them? Of what should they what should they be thinking about through maybe four seasons of strength training? Okay, so four seasons of strength training. The first thing I'm going to do is look at like what their real life looks like, kind of, because how old are you? Do you have a family? Do you travel for work? Things like that all kind of pop into my mind because the first thing that I'm going to do is try to plan your deloads around when family stuff or when work travel is happening. That way you're not stressed. We had one of our marathon runners get sick on a work travel thing and then came back and training was a little bit wacky for like two or three weeks because they were coming off it and it kind of took some time to rebound. So the first thing I want to do is plan deloads, plan when we're going to take it easy, because then it's easy. Then it's just plug and play. You know what I mean? Like once you know when you're going to go easy, cool. All the opposite times are just building up moderate to heavy and like progressing it normally there. Mm -hmm. But should people have like, should we be doing more high volume hypertrophy work and then progressing into some type of like, Oh, you want to talk nuts and bolts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so give us the nuts and bolts. The farther away we are, the more I'm thinking GPP. Like that's when you can get away with the higher rep, moderate weights and stuff like that. Like what, like you joked about the DVDs, <clears throat> excuse me, like the DVDs and the high reps and burning you out. Like that's fine when you're 12 months away, but things are really going to have to start getting nitty gritty around like when you're eight months out. And especially once you get six months in and closer, like that's when Anthony really buckled down and was like, hey, I need to have that structured plan. We went over nutrition, sleep, how we need to be making sure that he was getting a healthy dose of isometrics and eccentrics into his training, especially for his tendon and ligament health, which I think is one of the reasons why he was, he crushed it. I'm so proud of him for his marathon and stuff like that. But regardless, the farther away you are, it doesn't matter as much. You can get away with moderate volume, moderate intensity, even higher volume. And obviously there will be shifts as you go through blocks and stuff like that, where different things will be the emphasis. The further away you are, the more you're probably looking at higher reps, moderate intensities, because you're trying to build that GPP phase, general physical preparedness. Then you'll probably move into a little bit more of a strength phase, like pure strength. I'm talking like if you want to do like the classic five sets of five, you're far enough away where it won't make you burnt out. After that, it'll probably move to a speed strength phase where we're looking at a little more velocity training. And then just before you start to buckle down for prep and stuff like that, and this is what we did with Anthony, it was more like isometrics, eccentrics, very low volume training. He was doing probably only 45 minute workouts max a couple weeks before the marathon. He was not burning himself out with hour and a half training sessions. It was hit a couple really heavy-ish isometrics or eccentrics. We even had him doing some like overcoming isometrics where you pull into a rack and stuff like that just to really make sure that he was under maximal loads for time under tension, but the overall volume was very low. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the big piece people need to realize is just changing your volume and your intensity is really going to be what changes the game when it comes to race time. And then we need to look at, two our relationship to what our training 
strength training routine looks like versus our running routine look like. So I think this is one thing here too, where runners just, they, they come into us and they're broken and they, they're still running six days a week and they're putting in too many miles for their age or their, their actual like chronological training age. And it's like, hold on, we need to back up here. Like, let's just take a one little day out of running mm. and see what happens. And, and they're so reluctant to, and then they do. And it's like, Oh my God, like my pain's gone away. I'm getting faster. It's like, yeah, no shit. You recovered finally. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the other thing too is, yeah. So after race season, you need to come out of that and let's put you to three days a week of strength training for a little bit. Let's bring your running down. Right. You can bring the intensity up of the running a little bit, but bring the volume of it down. Drop a day, add a day of strength training. So let's do, say, even two and a half days of strength training where we do two days that have a strength focus and then maybe one day that's like a half hour, 45 minutes of just like light, springy stuff, mobility, whatever. Uh, Maybe some upper body, some rotational work. Right. And then... You can you can be in kind of this build phase there where in your off season your training volume doesn't have to be so high. You can work on different characteristics of your run in this phase too. And then as you get closer, you get four or five months out, okay, let's drop you back down to two days a week and let's see what decreasing that strength tra- strength training volume does to your runs as well. Because you will start getting stronger. You'll feel faster. And I think that's the big difference there that people need to see. And then um, talking about plyometrics, that's the other thing. So we, we just mentioned this, that, you know, when you run, there's two to four times your total body weight landing on that leg the whole time. And very few runners I see are actually doing, are actually doing plyometric work at home mm-hmm. and or outside of their run. And I think it should be damn near one of the most important things we're doing because if you can't accept that body weight well, that two to four times your body weight is going to be more towards the four, if not higher than four. And if I can't move from my ankle and my knee well, or I don't know how to accept load there, and it's all just banging into my hip, well, chances are things might get stiff, you're going to stop moving well, and we're going to end up in pain versus... Mm -hmm. If I can just teach someone to repeatedly accept load well, that plyometric activity is going to be very beneficial to long-term health as well as power. Yeah, that push-off is going to improve. If you get better with your vertical, guess what? Your push-off is going to be better. Yeah. And um, just looking at different variations there of you know, how I usually start, start people is we'll start with just like two-foot hops over the hurdles, right? And then we'll do that stuff laterally too because runners tend to forget that running happens in a rotational and frontal plane as well. There is some lateral movement. We need the lateral hip strong. And so we need to be ready to absorb forces in those planes as well. Uh, On top of the fact that I will then start to do depth drops. I love depth drops for runners because it just like teaches them how to very smoothly absorb force using hip, knee, and ankle all together synergistically and hip hinge. That's the other piece of like just learning to do these things very well and and getting a coach that can teach you these things is huge because if I 
have to teach you to squat and deadlift the right way, there's a good chance you have no idea how to jump mm-hmm. and land and use your hip, knee, and ankle synergistically, which means something is probably breaking down in your run because you don't know how to weight shift your body and keep your base of support um, under your center of mass correctly. So if we can just teach you these things even and have you start doing them on your own, you're going to be way better off for the long term. It's just a matter of learning how to do these and then do them repeatedly to keep you, keep yourself healthy. Definitely. And then little caveats to that. Um, I think one of the highest return on investments for a runner is if you have a really good coach, have them teach you how to swing a kettlebell at varying loads. And it will be amazing at how your, like your running form improves and changes because your hip extension gets so much cleaner and you know how to actually hip hinge under load. Yeah, I, I want to say this too, because um, we see people murder kettlebell swings all the time. Yeah, so the caveat is your coach better know how to teach you. And that's the problem too, right? Um, when we say coach, like you want like a, a CSCS, like someone that's been in a collegiate weight room type deal that really knows a true kettlebell swing. Or strong should- first. Yeah, you want to make that's what I was going to say. You want to make sure they're like strong first certified, um, which is like a kettlebell academy, basically. You want to make sure that they're there. And this isn't just squat down, stand up quick, and bring your arms up to your shoulders. Like that's not what a swing is. The swing is huge for runners. I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, what's great about a swing when done artfully is it's so pretty. It's, it's so, so pretty. It's so pretty and you get this massive expression of explosiveness and contractility and you learn to create stiffness and tension at one point. And this is really what runners need is we need to be stiff at certain points, like when we're landing, but then we need to be soft as we're going through our, our swing phase of gait. And so when you get to the top of that swing, you immediately have to learn to shut your body off almost and go into a state of relaxation to let the bell swing back into position, and then you create tension, stiffness, and contractility again to swing it up. So when done right, it's like just this amazing thing to watch. Mm. But again, like if you go to YouTube, there's a bunch of trainers out there that will tell you how to do a kettlebell swing. And I have to say probably 50% of the time, it's not going to be the right way to do a swing. Yeah, and that's being optimistic. So go go to if you're gonna go on YouTube, go to like the strong first kettlebell YouTube channel. Pavel. Yeah, Pavel Tasuli. Um I think all his stuff is on Amazon too, so you can do some learning there. But you definitely want coaching on this too, because there's a lot of craft that goes into building the skill of the swing that I think runners should learn um to benefit them in running. Yeah. And the dopest thing about the swing too, is you're getting a plyometric training effect, but your feet aren't leaving the ground. There's no impact on your joints and you're getting a super fast concentric on the way up. And then you're learning to absorb force just like when you run on the way down. Yes. I think too, for people that can't tolerate plyometrics or are having a tough time with, maybe they've been dealing with a stress fracture or something like that. Like a, a kettlebell swing can be a great game changer or stepping stone to get you back to plyometrics as well. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing too, is you can go really heavy if you want to go like a higher load or you can go lighter for more reps. Like it's so easily manipulated. And 
you can throw in all kinds of different variations there too. So you have uh, single leg swings. Um, you can do double kettlebell swings. You can do all kinds of different variations with swings, cleans, everything else that can just make uh, make your training just so much more um, efficient and have it pay off so much more for for your run. And just saying that too reminds me like I've got to program sandbag swings more often. Like we have that sandbag and I feel like I've only seen in the past two weeks a couple people use it. I need to program that more. Just facts. I do. Yeah, I love the sandbag. Um, especially like the rotational lunges I do with with patients. Huge. The, those are the best. People like love them and hate them, but um, they definitely have a lot of payoff there. And um, I guess the last piece here is really thinking about what <laughs> what should a mobility plan look like for a runner, Connor? So it depends like what is their mobility and their true range of motion at right now. Because sometimes they think they need mobility, but if their joints can already go to a certain spot, you don't need to spend a bunch of time stretching and doing mobility work. You might be better off. And I always say like return on investment, bang for your buck. Go do some heavy kettlebell goblet squats before you run. You might not actually need to do mobility before you run. It depends upon what every one person needs. It's N of one. Yes. And I want to talk about this too, because yeah, every runner comes in and it's like, oh, Everyone thinks they need to stretch their hamstrings, right? And some people do, but maybe 20% of the people that think they need to stretch their hamstrings actually need to stretch their hamstrings. And so I think this just comes down to how much running we're doing versus other skills we're doing. If we're only running and we don't know how to absorb those forces well, we don't know how to brace our core for long periods of time. Uh, we're only moving that one plane. Things do get stiff. Your body gets tired of doing the same thing all the time. Yeah. And there's it's a like little variation. It's like, if I'm just sitting here and I tell patients this all the time, if like, if I'm just picking a scab or just like itching my skin here, eventually it's going to cut open and it's going to scab. And then I'm just picking at a scab. Things aren't getting any better that way. And the other piece of that too is, the more time you put into running, the more time you have to put into other things too. Just like anything, like the more seriously you take that running training, you have to put into the things around that too. So if you're just overfilling the bucket with, with you know, you have a bucket. And more endurance, more running all the time. No. Yeah. So that bucket starts overflowing and we start to get stiffness, pain, weakness, um, immobility right and it's like well what are our options well i can put holes in the bucket which we don't want to do um right and what i typically need to do it's like well how do i make the bucket bigger or how do i put better ingredients in the bucket right so a, a 10 minute stretch session once a week doesn't mean shit if you're running 80 80 miles a week mm. like look at the contrast of time because mobility is a skill and this is what people tend to not realize is just like for you to come into the gym, I don't expect you on day two to start squatting 500 pounds when you could only do 50 yesterday. That shit takes time. Mobility takes time too. And it takes long, consistent effort to get you to that point where you feel mobile, 
And people will just be like, oh, I need to stretch my hamstrings more. And I get it. There's not an instant gratification that's maybe objectively measurable. But if you're going to stretch, you need to do it regularly or just don't do it at all. The other piece here is you could start strength training. And strength training, we're doing loaded active stretching. Let's call it that from now on. It's not strength training. It's just loaded active stretching. That's really what it is. I mean, we're trying to get you to to move to a full range. And with my runners, especially like I am going to put an extra accentuated, um, accentuated uh, stressor on getting them to their full current available range, pausing there. And then on the next rep, let's see if we can go a little bit further and start to experience a new end range just based on that. And the other piece there is that, um, we have to look at core stability. So a lot of runners too think core stability is these long duration planks and sit-ups and planks are great, but a lot of you do them wrong. Yeah. You do them the low wrong. Back. Yeah. Like if you feel your low back when you're doing a plank, it's wrong. It's just period, right? You should not feel your low back. You should feel the front of your, the, the bottom of your rib cage, down below your belly button to the top of your hips. That's what you should feel when you're planking. Just that front side, nothing in the back at all. If you do, you're doing it wrong. You need to stop. You need to do shorter periods of time because the the goal of the plank is to work the anterior chain of the core. Um, And when you feel your back, like your back should basically be disengaged. It's the front side supporting the bottom that's holding you upright. So if you feel the low back, you're just falling into those vertebrae there and we're not getting much out of that. So that, and then you doing a bunch of sit-ups, the thing about running and just about the core. And and I saw this with a patient I saw yesterday is something we need to understand um, for everyone is the principle that we get distal mobility when we have proximal stability. What that basically means, I'll say that again, Proximal stability will give you distal mobility. So if we start to lose, and this is why core training is important, right? If I start to lose my ability to create proximal stability, so if my core can't be stable when my hip should be mobile, I'll start to create stiffness in my hip because I can't create stability here. I put stiffness in place of stability or to make up for the loss of it. So runners are trying to do sit-ups and crunches, and they're just repeatedly flexing their spine over and over. But that's not stability. That's actually, that's kind of a mobility exercise in a way of you are moving where stability, we're kind of thinking more along the static lines of, I want to be able to have some type of external load or force or joints around my core move independently. Uh, without my core moving at all. So we should be challenging the core to not move at all when we're doing core stability work, right? So plank, that shouldn't move. Um, And a lot of people are just missing this endurance where we put them on their back, we do a McGill curl up. This is an exercise I think every runner should be doing at least three times a week. Shaking like, like you're like, I have like, you know, the, the telephone wire cord in the office attached to the table and you're, you're you're getting electrocuted by it. We should have everyone doing the McGill curl up 
at least three times a week to prep for their runs. And you can see if you do this right and you tap into it, immediately your hamstring and hip mobility will probably change. If you aren't truly stiff, but you need core stability, it will change. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And a little caveat to that too is the best runners, I feel like, are sometimes the best compensators around what they are lacking because they're really fast and everything until they get hurt. And then it's like the dragon kind of rears its head and it's like, oh, I've been doing this wrong for years. I need to fix this because that's why I got hurt over the past two years. Yeah. Talk to our buddy Zach. Mm. I told him we're recording this today because he actually yesterday was like, yeah, so what's what's the deal with the gym? Like, I'm thinking I might need to start getting out of the sagittal plane. I was like, yeah, dude. <laughs> you, you know, these runners just have this, this one little thing that can happen and then boom. It's like we need to just build them back up and be more resilient. But yes, I, I think that that is the big piece of core endurance that people are just lacking. It's not sit-ups and crunches. It's static holds. So I want to make sure you can really freaking plank really well in the right position and not feel your back at all. I want to be able to hold that for a minute to a minute, 30 seconds for a runner um, without sagging into the back. I want to do it the right way for a minute and a half. I want to be able to do kettlebell plank pull-throughs, um, landmined rotations with the bar. I want to be able to do – Copenhagen's. Copenhagen planks. I want to be able to do single-arm farmer carries really well. I want to do cross-body single-leg deadlifts. These are all core training pieces that people or runners just don't seem to get. Absolutely. I will say with two, one caveat. We've been – Poo-pooing Stop on with the runners. caveats here. Nah, I'll caveat all I want. Ted Lasso. Regardless, we've poo-pooed on runners a lot today. I will say one thing that they are exceptional at is data and statistics. So if you have a runner that's not Love really it. buying in, like show them how like a Google Sheet works and how tracking load over time on, say, their front squat. Show them how as their front squat improves, their back pain gets better and their times get better. And they will instantly be in. And they'll be like, all right, I'm in two to three times a week. Sure. 30, 45 minute workouts. Nope, no issue. I'll be here. Because when you can show them statistically and with data, how if they're getting stronger, it improves their running. There's no question they're going to do it. They'll be in. But it takes that almost reinforcement. Like, how many runners do you treat that are like, oh, I had this many steps. This is my pace. This is my mile split. Like, they love data. That's why they wear Apple watches, garments, heart rate monitors, you name it. You know, they're data people. So feed them data. Absolutely. I do. And that, that is, <laughs> we have shit a lot on runners today. Um, but we that's love just, our runners. That, that's our frustrations as a, as a PT uh, and a strength coach that knows a lot of this could be um, prevented if we were just taking our strength training a little bit more seriously. And yeah, I, that's the coolest part about runners is there's, uh, some, not everyone. There are like the people that train as a runner. And then there's like people that go out for a run, right? There's a difference. <laughs> so like you go in for a run, you know, you're doing a, a three mile run once, twice a week. And you just go out, you do the same loop every time. Like you're not a runner. I'm talking about the people that are like, I am training for a 10 K or a half or a marathon or a 5k right? or a fast 5k. Go easy or on the fast, fast 5k. 5K. Yeah, but most of those guys that are doing that are doing marathons too, or girls. Um, but they love the data. 
And it's like, if, and that's what makes rehab so much easier. If you can come in on day one, like hot rod and Zach have, and it's like, um, Hey, you're doing X, Y, Z. Okay, great. Let's reduce that by 20% right now while we try to build up these other properties uh, and strategies that we need to get from you to get you back to running without pain. And uh, it makes it so much easier versus like, oh, I just kind of go out and I run. It's like, you know, my program's all over the place. <clears throat> I don't know what my volume is. And the, the thing everyone needs to realize is everything at the end of the day comes down to load management, Right. So between the different activities you're doing, if we can measure it, we can manage it. If we can't measure it, we can't manage it. And so that's the biggest thing of, especially if you're starting to get hurt all the time, look at what your training is where you're, and then like you can from there kind of get, start to get an idea even on your own of what your tolerance level is and how you should be training just below that threshold and what it takes to really push yourself over that threshold. Because really we see that anytime anyone trains and makes a jump of more than 10% volume in a week, they get hurt. I think it's a 30% chance of injury anytime you go over, take more than a 10% jump in volume. So um, those stats are big. And if you're not tracking, there's a very high likelihood you're going to make more than a 10% jump in your training volume week by week. Definitely. And like your friend Justin said on one of your last podcasts, that was amazing, by the way. Um, like you can track your HRV. It's so easy now. So many of the devices and wearables, like forget the recovery score, the sleep score. But like if you have a training week where you make a 15% jump versus an 8% jump, you will bet you you probably recover better on the 8% week. Yes. And one caveat there, Connor. Oh, knock it off. <laughs> is uh, when you're tracking HRV, you want to make sure you're monitoring it at night through your sleep um, because that's when HRV becomes most um accurate as a measurement so like for me i wear an apple watch mainly because i want to tell the time and see how many steps i take in a day um it does track hrv but it's not near as accurate because well i need to charge the thing all night um because it takes too long to charge when i get home at night so unfortunately i don't wear it to bed um i probably also lose an eye with the the watch cover on this thing but that's a story for another day so connor is there any other caveats you have for us today? No other caveats. The only other things that I'll say are pay attention to. No, it's not. Regardless, <laughs> it's so funny. Pay attention to your shoe wear. Make sure that your mileage on your shoes isn't getting excessive. And hold, then, hold on. Question. Do they need to tie and untie their shoes every time they put their sneakers on? Every single time. Maximum performance is you make sure that it's just the perfect amount of pressure every time you tie your shoes. Connor says this is science, but it's bullshit. It's science. Tie your shoes perfectly every time. So pay attention to the shoe wear. Make sure your mileage isn't getting too high. Um, pay attention to your diet and inflammatory foods because if all of a sudden you have a flare-up one week, I feel like I feel like it was the week of the Super Bowl. All of my runners came in complaining about joint pain the next week, and I swear it was because of all the junk they ate on Super Bowl Sunday. I am not excluded. I felt the same way training that week. And then the last thing is pay attention to alcohol and water intake. If you have a really bad training day and you went out the night before, pay attention. Probably just need to drink more water and electrolytes word all right folks this is another great episode with our boy dr ted lasso dr connor ted lasso signing for, off for, for those of you that don't know connor he is the real life ted lasso
just, all love immaculate just, vibes on a on a Thursday morning, baby. He's just less oblivious than uh, than than Ted Lasso. We'll give him that. So thank you guys. If you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, other guests you want to hear, please reach out. Let us know. Also, if you liked, enjoyed, and um, would like to help us with this podcast, please like, rate, review, share, subscribe, whatever you can do. Go on there, do it so we can get some more reviews up and get our uh, rankings a little bit higher with the show so more people like you can uh, find it and learn from it. So thank you all for listening and have a wonderful day.